Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Usually when you're upset and when you're stuck, you've if you look down deep, you're like, oh, I'm committed to staying right here. Yeah. And course. then I think when you say that out loud, you're like, oh shit, I don't want to stay right here. How do we, how do I get out of my own way here a bit? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Good day to you. On today's episode, we are going to talk about some of your inspiring, provocative, super dope fire emoji questions. That's right. (laughs) We're headed back to the mailbag for another Ask Us Anything my favorite episodes to make. But before we open our mail, let's do a check-in. Yes, the check-in continuing our great tradition of check-ins. And today we're going to begin with the check-in question, what's something you think you have excellent taste in? And there might be some mild retort depending on what we each say. (laughs) I hope so. Let's start with you since this was a question you created and I'm assuming you have a fun answer in mind. So go ahead and take it away. I have two. My first answer is music. Mm-hmm. I just have really good taste in music. I was, someone came over the other day that we don't know well, and they were looking through my record collection and they were like, you should put this in your will to someone who really deserves it because holy <laughs> shit. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty dope. My vital collection's insane. But besides that, I have on a more meaningful level, I have really good taste in friends. I'm really picky. I'm super picky about my friends. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but as Aaron knows, my like slogan in this life is like, I'd die for 10 people and everyone else can die. And I just feel like routinely when I cross pollinate friends, the feedback is like, oh, that person is awesome. And I'm like, I know. Like I just introduced Ed to friends who he had never met before on Saturday night. And then, and I saw them the next day and they were like, your husband is awesome. And I was like, yeah, no shit. Best. So I don't know. I just have really like I don't have I don't have people who are really close to me that meet other people and get like lukewarm reviews or like oh she seems nice. People are like, how do I get to be friends with that person? And I'm like, yes, that's the move. What do you have great taste in, Aaron? So I like this question a lot because I often pontificate about what taste is and like, is there such a thing as good taste? And when someone says like, I have good taste, you don't have good, like who's the arbiter of good taste. And Mm -hmm. I do believe there is such a thing. I do Mm -hmm. believe that I have good taste in certain things and not others and that other people have it in certain things, not others. And it boils down to me to like, if you either have extraordinary natural talent in something, or you've spent a lot of time with it and studying it and being with it, I think that either one of those two things can result in better taste. And if you just don't do that stuff, then it might be bad. 
So, so I definitely, I do believe, but it's a fun thing to, to debate, like, why does it exist? And what are we really talking about? Um, for me, I like my aesthetic taste, like when I decorate with Brit, like she's definitely the driving force, but she and I have a lot of tete-a-tete and specifically around color. I feel like I have good taste on color, especially in the real physical world, less so maybe in, in digital. So I really like that. And then I have garbage taste, I think in movies where I actually Mm. just, I like a lot of stuff that a lot of people hate. Like I'm a really forgiving viewer. But when mm-hmm. it comes to aesthetics, like most people's homes that I walk into, I'm like, your house is fucking ugly. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't do it. And but most movies I walk into, I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. And most people are like, this guy's an idiot. So that's yeah, funny. that's my that's my taste story. Your house is very beautiful. Um, Ed has a friend who named Roger, and the joke among their friend group has always been that what Roger actually likes is popcorn and sitting in a dark room. <laughs> Okay. Because it doesn't <laughs> matter what's on. This movie was great. And they're like, it was not great. Was what not. was great but was there the was popcorn. popcorn and, and then and you the went to a room. movie, which is yeah. what you like, actually. A little recliner, maybe. Sometimes <laughs> they have heat now in the seats. It's like, don't worry about what's Just on the Just the experience. The experience. Yeah. All right. Let's do an AUA. Let's see how many we get through. I think our record is two. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, let's go to the mailbag and dig around and pull out one thing to talk about. One question to talk about until we run out of time. I didn't read these, so here we go. This is from Michelle. How do you identify and build organizational rituals and why are they so important or are they? Oh, you like rituals. You talk about it. Love a ritual. Yeah, I think the reality is that the best rituals that I've experienced emerge organically, but the conditions for them to happen have been created. So like Mm. what I find is that you need a little bit of openness to novelty and to fun and to silliness and to bizarre ideas in order to trip over these rituals and these moments where it's like somebody says we should try something and you just try it and you see like, what does that open up? Because most rituals are out of the ordinary in some Mm. way, shape or form. Like they are asking you to be reflective or like more serious than you would be or more lighthearted than you would be. So I think my first cut at this question is, I'm not sure that you can force a ritual. But what I think you can do is make sure that there's openness to trying things that are out of the ordinary and then notice when they really slap and be like, ooh, should we make that a thing that happens more than once because it won't happen naturally. So that's my first cut. But what do you think that leaves out? I think that rituals are really important markers and we often skip them because they feel vulnerable or corny. Sure. So I feel like it's nice when you're on a team or in an organization and it's like when someone new joins, we do this. Or like (laughs) when someone leaves, we do that. Or when someone has a baby or a readyversary or whatever, we have away. I think the creation of those things can take a lot of different forms. And to your point, I don't love the idea of one person being like, this is how we do it, everybody. But (laughs) I think also if they're not held usually by like a specified role, it's really easy to not have those things done consistently. So I just think like, you know, you would never at home with your family be like, we're just not going to acknowledge like my spouse's birthday this year. 
Yeah. But at work, we do that all the time. It's like very hit or miss. And I just like the idea of picking what the moments are that make us human and acknowledging them as a collective in some way that feels good. You've sort of tripped up for me in my head or kicked up for me in my head, rather, a formula for ritual oh, design. Man, which we're is only like, like minute four, and we're just getting right to a framework. Well, it was a long check-in, so you know I'm ready. <laughs> so I can't wait. Like overdue. <laughs> yeah, it's like when blank, we mm. blank, right? So when something yeah. triggers it, we do this thing in order to blank whatever the like outcome or thing was. And then there's something that's brewing at the end, which is like, which is exceptional because. So oh. you're basically saying like you're building this formula of like, when this trigger happens, we do this thing in order to drive whatever, like belonging, excitement, encouragement, whatever. And it's different that we do it that way because this, right? It's something mm. about us that's going to set us apart or make people feel like they're part of something that's a little bit different. And you okay. know, as soon as you walk in and everybody's wearing the hoods and around in a circle chanting, you're like, this is not the zoo. Like we're in a different... That got weird. Yeah, it got weird. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it a cult, right? It's got its own thing going on. So I, yeah, I like that formula as maybe a Mad Lib and it would be fun to just get a group together and be like, first of all, what are the Mad Libs we already have that we really like? And then can we generate a few more that we think would be nice to have? And I know at the ready in particular over the years, we've, we've agonized a bit over like, how do we welcome new members? How do we say goodbye to departing members? How do we... You know, and that has been interesting. One ritual that happened at Murmur that I like is we have a shared digital whiteboard with a spot for each person that's already on the team. And when someone new joins, we fill that spot with the answers to some prompt, like mm. what's the media that defines you or what have you learned since you got here or what do you wish you knew? And it kind of becomes this like collage of identity and insight and whatever. And then it's like a welcome map for them to all their insane colleagues. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Not my idea. Importantly to say, as we talk about how to generate these things. Okay. okay. So, so maybe to break our world record, I'm just going to move us into the next question. <laughs> and this is from, uh, from Anders who wanted to know what to do with that leader who, for whatever reason, be it lack of insight, lack of emotional literacy, who knows, is so removed from updating their orgs OS that it's hard not to personify them as the problem, right? If the person in charge or leading the team or founder or whatever is, is passively or actively kind of stopping the evolution, aren't they the problem versus the system and how to mm. think about that? So I'm curious where you would go if you ran into the person in the way problem. <laughs> If I ran into that. If, yeah. If, if on some crazy in your life, you would have ran into that. So surprising. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah this, this is always there. <laughs> it's never not there. Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really great question because our systems are made of humans. And so we can't totally, even though we say people act rationally within the system, which they do, human problems are still human problems to be addressed. And yeah. so I do think that this is like a really valid Thing, I would still take the tact and often do when I <laughs> find a leader who's particularly intractable for whatever reason, I still am very curious to look at what about the system that person is shaping and existing in is reinforcing their behavior because right. usually it's real stuff. So like 
usually, you know, I've had the experience multiple times with multiple buyers of an executive being like, I'm your guy. We're going to really fuck shit up. And then the minute that person was asked to change the tiniest aspect of their way of working, they were like, hold up a second. This is not what I signed up for. And I was like, hmm, okay. So this system is designed for your comfort. And what you said about wanting to change it is actually flying in direct conflict with that. And so now we are out of the realm of what is tolerable. So I think looking at the way in which that leader who refuses to change is responding rationally to the system around them is valid and valuable. There's usually money involved. There's usually power involved. There's usually reputation involved. There's usually control involved. So like go find the lever that's keeping them stuck. And then my less sort of judgmental and shitty way of talking about this is most of us behave the way that we do because it's served us well in some way. And most of our maladaptive behaviors come from trauma. You know, like we learned, we learned how to behave like shitheads because of something bad that happened to us that saved us. And so I think without going to this leader and being like, let's get you some therapy, my friend, I do think just (laughs) approaching the conversation with the assumption that they are doing what they do because it has kept them safe in the past is a really important prerequisite to seeing anyone as a problem. It's like, they're not a problem. What has happened to them that has led to this set of behaviors might be problematic. But coming to the conversation with that in mind to figure out where there is flexibility and where there is wiggle room and where someone is willing to give up or try new, I think is a better way of wading into those waters than just being like, hey, man, you're really fucking this up. (laughs) And if you don't get out of the way, we're never going to make it. This is a you problem. That won't be triggering at all. Um, I agree with everything you said. And I think when I visualize this problem, I visualize the person with their operating system for their team, their unit, their function, whatever they're leading. And then there's another operating system around that, which is like what they're subject to. And, you know, if they're inside a bigger company or a bigger system, there are almost certainly agreements and structures in place that are incentivizing certain behaviors from them or encouraging certain behaviors from them. It's the classic story. You've even told a version of this before where like someone's being mean and you find out that someone's being mean to them in the same way. right? And they just recreate the pattern. So I think there's this other context. And even if they're the founder and you're just like, there is no bigger system. Yeah, there is. There's a family system around them. There's a cultural system around them. There's an investor system around them. There's other things tugging at their thought process. So I think to your point, understanding what those might be and if those are interruptible or not, if those are subject to change or not is important as a first step. And then the other thing I would say, I guess the only other thing I would say, and this is a bit of a broken record for me on this show and in life in general, is even if they are really in the way and even if they are problematic, they still have something they want to change. Everybody does. I've never, ever met a leader, even people that have designed their system to serve them exclusively, they still have something that they're a little bit chapped about. And they wish we're different about the team or the dynamic or the strategy or the market or whatever. So I think you still have an opportunity to go to them and be like, look, what do you think is stopping us from doing our best work? Could we do an experiment there first and just see what kind of space that creates? I do do always want to try that move if I get totally stuck otherwise. I'll always try that as like a backup plan. I think there is nothing more. There is no question, I think, with more utility than basically just being like, 
so you're telling me you're good with it the way it is right now? (laughs) (laughs) Just basically saying to someone like, just FYI, you chose this and you're continuing to choose this. If you tell me that's good and this is the conscious choice you're making, yeah, good for you, man. Like you're one a you're one in a billion, and enjoy enjoy your life. But I think to your point, there's only really two beginnings to any of those conversations, and it's where does it hurt or what do you want? And like tapping into someone's pain, to your point, is valuable. Tapping into someone's aspirations can also be really valuable. But either way, there are very few people who are satisfied with their situation. You can almost totally, always find something totally. to talk about. And I'm glad you brought up conscious and commitment because I, you know, everyone remembers when we had Jim Dethmer on the show talking about conscious leadership. The most profound moment in that work for me was when you're complaining about something and someone's like, So it feels like you're committed to this recipe you've mm. created that's creating that problem. Mm-hmm. Are you actually committed to staying where you are or are you committed mm-hmm. to moving? And usually when you're upset and when you're stuck, you've if you look down deep, you're like, oh, I'm committed to staying right here. Yeah. And course. then I think when you say that out loud, you're like, oh shit, I don't want to stay right here. How do we how do I get out of my own way here a bit? So there's probably some interesting ways to ask questions of a leader like that might open up some possibilities. Yeah. So the next question is one that came from inside the house. This is inspired (laughs) by our colleague, Curian, and it's something that we've been thinking about a bunch, which is this. How do we approach adopting new tools with clients who want to work in public, like theoretically and be transparent and are just digging that entire vibe, but are really comfortable using tools that don't support that or that aren't designed for that kind of openness? Um, This is fun to talk about because Mm -hmm. it is challenging and you're building one of these things. So let's talk about all of the things because this happens with Murmur. This happens with Slack. This happens with Notion. It happens with Google Docs. It happens all over the place when we get out of, you know, documents on our desktop and email siloing. uh, Then we get into some rough waters. I feel like we're even writing about this too. I mean, the whole conversation about not just the does the tool do it, but are we feeling psychologically safe to use it in that way is really at the point of this question. I What I have found is that all tools have opinions. We've talked about that on the show before. The okay. opinions are either intentionally baked in or unintentionally baked in, just like the rest of our operating system. And often those opinions break hard along lines of private, public, transparent, opaque, we're all out there or we're all in silos doing our thing. And most products and tools that are large, that are successful in the market, tend towards the private, siloed, secure, locked down posture for two reasons. One, from a safety and security and kind of procurement standpoint, that's what a lot of big, important, expensive buyers want because they're Mm -hmm. in the full panic mode of bureaucracy. And two, because the kind of default assumption of management right now is I want the control, I want the secrecy, I want the ability to have a conversation that other people don't hear, I only want to show the work when it's ready. All those things are also sort of part of the main, I think, theory of work held at the top. And so if you put the procurement and security desires with the general kind of ego desires of users, you end up with a lot of software that is not super friendly to that. Then suddenly we march in and we're like, hey, there's a whole stack of software that has other opinions. Do you want to use it? And the benefits seem great. So people say yes. 
But then when they get in there, now it's time to put up or shut up. And that's where everything goes to shit. And I would love right. to hear you riff on that because you've been doing a lot of research about how and why that happens. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I'll say about this that is a more recent revelation because of book-related work and a conversation that I had with someone internally, my bud Jason, is how much using new ways of working, particularly in transparent tools, has to do with competence, which is something that I feel like I have largely overlooked at the ready when I'm just like, fucking use just fucking use the tool, you know, like it's here. It's better just fucking do it, you know? Uh, and with clients, honestly, I'm just like, obviously Slack is better than email. Why are you being such a pain in my butt? But what I am learning is like how much people bring their insecurity to something like using a tool. I've actually had some really interesting conversations with my mom about this recently, like how mm. upsetting it is for her to not be able to intuitively use tooling that younger people can use because she wasn't like an internet native. Right. And she, and the number of things that she's like, you don't understand what it's like to be a person for whom what you just did on your phone isn't natural. Right. And, and so I'm learning just through a variety of conversations, how much people bring like self-criticism and insecurity to tools. And if they don't understand how to play well and how to participate well, and then you add to that a layer of observability because these tools are transparent, what you get is mostly hiding. Yep. <laughs> so people yep. just are like, I'll either use the thing that I used before or I will just not use anything at all. But what I'm not going to do is make an ass of myself on a public mm -hmm. stage. Not, so no I way. think the level of onboarding that's required for people to feel really comfortable being in the public square is significant. And it's more than just like monkey see monkey do, you know, it's like people have to understand the language of emojis. People have mm -hmm. to understand what a good reaction is in murmur. People have to understand that when they create a different view and notion, they fuck it up for everyone else. And yeah. that is a problem. And if you don't have the kind of resources available to give people at least of like base level of competence in using the tool, they're not going to take advantage of it. And having an empty public square is, is really boring. So, yes. so I think creating that like level of confidence and competence is something that I've come to more recently. Listening to you say that, it points out to me that there's this paradox at the heart of a lot of these tool transitions. And you take Slack as an example and you say, okay, we know that getting to that level of confidence and competence comes through training or practice or playing with the tool and often in a structured way, like having support, et cetera. And we know that people are burned out and overwhelmed. And mm. so the main pushback is like, I can't learn how to use Slack. I'm busy with all this email. <laughs> like yeah, I'm just yeah. drowning in email. How am I going to go learn Slack? And now you're asking right. me to do both. And what's interesting, and I know this has happened a lot with enterprises, is that's how they end up on like 20 different islands at once. Totally. Where they're like, oh, I'm still using email and now I'm kind of using Slack. And it's because I was not able to make that full transition because of the level of overload that I'm feeling and the lack of scaffolding in migrating over. And yeah. so I have found that the only transitions that I've seen have, that have been successful are with the scaffolding you described and with a clear point of demarcation like, 
on June 1st, we're not sending any internal email anymore, you know? Yeah. And that is, that is hard and it's sometimes a little harsh, but it's a necessary part of the formula, I think. Yeah. And like, talk about a thing that is really uncomfortable having done totally. this kind of work in client organizations where they're like, well, Marty isn't going to read Slack. So we have to send him the doc and email. And I'm like, you know how you get Marty to read the doc and Slack? Don't send him the email. And people are like, what? You can't <gasps> what? do that. And I'm like, you can. You, I promise you, yeah. you can. It's how you get people to come to the well and get their water there is when you turn off the faucet. Um, exactly. But even that takes doing. So I think to your point, clear demarcation and also training. And then also like the agreements that are necessary. Like, mm-hmm. you know, one of the pushbacks that I've gotten particularly around Slack is Oh, we communicate with all of these external vendors and partners. Okay. First of all, there are a lot of external partners that we can use Slack with because of shared channels. So maybe that's an option. Rock and roll. And if that's not an option, maybe the working agreement is we still use email with external partners. Exactly. And we use Slack exclusively internally. I just think things like that, like clarifying things like that, make it a lot easier to roll than if people are to your point, having a foot in multiple camps, which is the worst of all possible worlds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the agreements piece. I think you can make one going into the experiment. You can make one going out of it. And the idea that has been bubbling since we started talking about this is I think we need to bring more play into app transitions. And this is actually relevant for Murmur. It's relevant for Slack. Going in and doing it for realsies brings all this, it's fraught with all this stuff that's going on outside of that. But having a really interesting, really exciting play-based experience that somebody really builds carefully and thoughtfully, where you can like in an hour get to use all the features of Slack through a narrative experience that doesn't suck with your team. If that ever existed, that would be, I think, a game changer. Totally. I mean, Jason's point to me, and this was in the context of making agreements, not even using tooling, but I think the same truth holds. He was like, learning this practice should feel like a playground, not a math test. Mm -hmm. And right now it feels like a math test. And so you show up to it the way that you show up to a test you're like unprepared for. And whether it's through simulation or to your point, just through a different kind of early experience, I think that really has to change. Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to talk about, because the original question I think had to do with transparency, was in my mind, this is this has been a thing at the ready in recent weeks. I have like a little theory brewing that's not fully formed yet, but basically I think there's a trade-off to be made between transparency and trust early on which is something like this, and maybe you can help me turn this into something more fully formed. I think when a group doesn't yet have high trust, in the case that I'm thinking about, it's just because it's a group that hasn't worked together before and they're just getting to know each other as human beings. There's like a bunch of just very loose connections in the group and they're just sort of getting to know each other. So there's not yet a high degree of trust and having a high degree of transparency with the broader system, I think makes building that trust a lot more difficult because it's like, 
I already feel vulnerable with these people. Like I'm already trying to not say the wrong thing with these people because they don't know me well enough to know what I mean. Yep. And then to have to also feel like that's being surveilled by a broader organization makes that work go a lot slower. Whereas in a very high trust group that I feel very connected to and where I don't actually worry too much about being misinterpreted, I'm like, anybody can read that shit. You can like put that on the internet and let the public read it. I don't care. You know, what I say to Allie, you can post it anywhere. So in my mind, a thing that I've been thinking about is like for newly formed groups, there's sort of a hierarchy of transparency where if too much is happening in DM, even in small group DM, can you push that to a private channel? Can you challenge yourself to get from a one-to-one DM to a group DM? Can you challenge yourself to get from a group DM to a private channel? Can you eventually challenge yourself to get from a private channel to a public channel? Like as the courage increases because the connection increases, can we challenge ourselves to be more and more public? I feel like there's something in there that I'm really playing with right now because the trade-off I'm making is building trust even over broader transparency because yes. I think I'll get the other one eventually. I think this is genius. And it, the metaphor for this is bringing your date home to meet your parents on the first date, Totally, um, which is like super awkward, right? That is yeah, not the time it. or the place. And you actually want to get the like getting to know you stuff out of the way so that you can show up with a confident identity as a couple before you meet the friends or the parents or the whoever, right? And this feels like the same thing in a way in the story of teaming. So I really like it. And I think it would be fun to see tooling aid that process with the Mm. right progressive thresholds and the right guidance along the way. That's Mm -hmm. like, hey, new channel, we recommend you keep it unlocked for a hot sec. And then a little wise in, it's like, ooh, y'all are pretty bubbly now. Like you might be ready to open up. You want us to open it up and just help people make that transition that you're describing. Yeah. And I wonder, like, you tell me, but I do feel like this applies to Murmur as well. Because I definitely have moments where I'm like, this is an agreement that I want to change. And if just my immediate team was going to process it, I would do it right now. And because the entire company is going to see it and potentially weigh in on it, I'm going to not do it right now. (laughs) Or maybe ever, more likely. Because I don't want to make anyone mad or hurt anyone's feelings. And also because I'm busy and I don't want to deal with 50 reactions. And I I think Murmur is no different than any other tool where it's like it is very much designed for high transparency and high visibility. And I see the value in that. And then if what you're trading off is the quantity of agreements that are actually being proposed and passed, I'm like, is it worth it? Yeah, totally, totally. And I think something you and I have discussed briefly in ideation around this is could you have a default public-private pattern in a team? Like if you start a new team in Slack or a new team in Murmur, can it be like out of the gate, there's the public and the private version of this and they actually are really easy to navigate and manage and you kind of really know which one you're in very obviously, very visibly. And then you can just decide this thing starts over here and moves over there. This thing can just start over there. We have our room in the house with the keep out sign on it. And then we have the rest of the house that we show up in as a team. I think as much transparency as you can stand in tools is always the move. And I think this is an area where teams' eyes are bigger than their stomach or their brains are bigger than their courage or something like that. Because it doesn't, because when it just gets set up to like everybody can see everything, then you get a lot of weird, not that helpful patterns. 
it goes back to the start small principle that we talk about. Yeah. And and honestly, it goes a little bit to the idea of like rhythms and rituals and patterns as well, which is just to say, when you go into an adventure like this and you're rolling out a new tool, you might want to take the time to architect what are the progressive unfoldings that are going to happen mm-hmm. over the next six months. And rather than dumping everybody into the deep end of the pool, being like, hey, we're going to have a couple months of just using this with our teams privately. And then this, and then that, and then da 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 da, and suddenly you find yourself in new territory. So yeah. take it, take it slow, people. Or I've seen this at the ready: have a private channel and a public channel. Yep. And try to notice when you're defaulting to a private channel, and you don't need to. Exactly. Keep it there and keep it available, and use it until trust is established and the bubbliness you referred to comes, and. Don't put shit in there that you don't care if everybody sees. Put that stuff <laughs> in the public channel. Because like, yeah. otherwise you just start creating double work for yourself. Yep. And then over time, maybe there is only one. Or maybe there's and, not. I don't know. And there's real learning to be had when you take a pause and notice why you're going private versus public totally. in one of these tools. Yeah. And I we had this happen last week at Murmur and into this week where... I noticed and other people noticed and actually brought it to the group's attention that like there was a lot happening in DMs and just saying like there's a lot happening in DMs and it's making the place feel quiet, but it's not quiet. Why is that happening? And can we move some things back into the public arena? And just the noticing, just somebody being like, that's a thing that's happening is enough for everybody to go, why is that happening? And it might be like people are tired or they're nervous about what they're saying or they don't want to deal with other people. Who knows what the reason is? And in, in the case of Murmur, I think we're still unpacking what was going on. But it felt like an echo effect of a holiday season and a little bit of like, we're trying to be quiet. We're trying to be reserved mm-hmm. and let everybody take a break. And so a mm-hmm. few of us snuck off into a DM to get some work done, maybe offsides. And then some more people did. And, and suddenly you have a pattern. Yeah. But I think in any case, there's always a lesson hiding in the why you're directing it to the private versus the public. And if you can talk about that as a team or even with yourself in the mirror, there's goodies to be had. I think that's really insightful. Like I'm realizing for myself, as you're saying that, that I totally default to DMs when I'm overwhelmed because I just feel like I can be really short. Short and straight. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, here it is. I don't feel like I have to be like, provide context or be like circumspect or be thoughtful. I can just be like, Hey, did you send this in a DM? And like, I wouldn't put that in a public channel. I wouldn't at you and say, did you send this? But in a DM, I absolutely would. So when I'm super tired and I'm really overwhelmed and I have 9,000 things to do, I think sometimes that's just like, for me, an easy shortcut I'm realizing in this conversation that has nothing to do with my comfort with transparency around the material and everything to do with my comfort about being transparency, about like not being complete or, you know, about just like taking shortcuts. Not having to think of everything because when you speak in the town square, you need to be thoughtful about how you're saying and what you're saying. That's just part of life as a human. And when you're DMing somebody, you can just be like, Hey bitch, where's the paperwork? And that's fun. Exactly. Exactly. With the right people. You can give a single emoji to be like, Eyeballs, I read this. Not like, yeah. thank you so much for sharing this. With oh, me. man. Yeah, this has been so meaningful to me. No, you can yeah, give them exactly. the thumbs up. Give them your passive aggressive thumbs My up. My passive aggressive thumbs <laughs> up. <laughs> That's only for Aaron, for everyone else who's listening. I don't do that with the rest of you. I only it's do just that me. Yeah, I'm, I, the thumbs up is only punishment in our DMs. Yeah. And that's that explains a lot. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
with that, I think we found a good place to to stop for now. And three questions answered is possibly a world record. Next time we'll go for four. Mm. And I think this is something that we can we can all be proud of. We'll need like three hours. Okay, uh, that was really <laughs> fun. Thanks for sending your questions, y'all. Please yes. send questions, and also while you're making questions to send to us, maybe give us a review because we would also like that. Absolutely. Reviews are fun. Questions are even better. Sharing the show with a friend is best of all. As always, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready and our wonderful team there where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We read every email. We respond to them. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Thank you.